So the talk this evening is about understanding attachment or understanding desire, craving, clinging, all of those words that signify that kind of holding in the mind. So the practice we're doing here is about cultivating the wholesome and powerful qualities of the mind and heart that support this uh, clear and easeful opening to what the truth is, to reflect the deepest liberating truths and experiential understanding. This experiential knowledge or understanding can only be revealed in the present moment. So as we know from our own practice, it can't be uh, from reliving something in the past or trying to live something out that somebody else has experienced or just agreeing with someone else's beautiful experience. The present moment, really experiencing the ever-changing present moment, reveals a lot of wisdom, and that wisdom is what liberates the mind. So we see that taking this path is a process. It's not about um, opening to lights and having those kind of lights in the mind on all the time. It's a process of opening to and discovering what these truths are for ourselves. It's nurturing the seeds of wisdom, nurturing the seeds of potential freedom in the mind, in the heart. With every moment that we develop mindfulness, (coughs) wisdom, compassion, equanimity, all of those powerful qualities and more. With those qualities, we discover what the natural clarity or purity or luminosity of the mind and heart is. When it's not clouded by any of the defilements. In the Tao Te Ching, there's a beautiful little sentence that has always... uh, nurtured me and drawn my attention to go deeper into. And that few words says, the secret, the secret waits for eyes unclouded by longing, unclouded by longing. So in this process, it doesn't only open to the luminous, the beautiful, the blissful, the easeful experiences. If that happened, there wouldn't be any growth. There wouldn't be any maturing. There would just be kind of like hanging out in that place. But the process opens to what's difficult to experience in this inner terrain. We begin to know all parts of ourselves, all parts of what is called body, what is called mind, what is called heart, this body-mind-heart continuum. And we begin to understand more and more about who we are, about what being a human being is all about. In the process, we develop uh, states of mind, wholesome, powerful states of mind that help us go more and more deep on the path. So this is a process of what you call self-discovery, to understand that not-self aspect. But as Mark Twain says, self-discovery is not always good news. It's not not something we jump up and down on about and say, oh, yippee, now I understand this about myself. I understand, you know, how tightly I hold on to things. And it's a relief to see it. It's better to see it than not to see it. But... um, It's not always an easy thing to do. So tonight I'd like to talk about the deeply and tenaciously rooted habitual force of the mind, the defilement called attachment, called clinging, called aversion, desire. And sometimes um, there is an aversion to this word defilement, but I think we have to take it with that kind of gravity that it is something, these conditions, defile the mind of its natural luminosity, of its purity. And that's the truth of the matter. 
So how to understand and recognize and be vigilant, not negligent about this powerful force, how to work with it, what I hope to cover tonight. Because if we look carefully, we'll see that when this force isn't recognized and reckoned with, the force is strengthened through habit, through its habitual tendency. And unknowingly, it controls our lives. In the Dhammapada, these verses of the Buddha, it is said, craving arises in the negligent. The craving of a person addicted to careless living grows like a creeper, jumping from life to life like a fruit-loving monkey in the forest. There are many... uh, ways that the Buddha expresses it in this in the suttas, and this is just one of them. So in the Buddhist teaching, there are what are called the three roots of suffering. I'm sure all of you or many of you have uh, heard about or know just by your own experience. The first one is attachment, greed, desire, etc. The second is aversion or hatred. And the third is delusion, which Sky spoke about the other evening. They're called the three roots of suffering because when they're not recognized, when we're not mindful of them, we suffer in the moment and from the ramifications, the consequences of them, of being, uh, acting them out. Or even if they're not acted out because of the habit pattern that's not recognized, it continues. Not only the suffering of attachment, but because it's not recognized, the suffering of delusion continues. So much hinges on this one root of suffering, attachment, that it's important to illuminate this and just give some understandings around it. Of course, It's so much to understand in a way. There's so much that the Buddha talked about in relationship to this subject that I couldn't possibly cover everything in an hour. When we understand its nature, it's not likely to fool us. It's not likely to entrap us. The first noble truth is dukkha satcha. I think I've mentioned this before. Satcha is truth. Dukkha is suffering. Many kinds of suffering, as the Buddha pointed out. But that's not the subject of the talk this evening, uh, the different kinds of suffering. Dukkha satcha, translated directly, means there is the truth of suffering. The truth of suffering exists. It's not a myth. It's not something that we've made up. It exists. And the Buddha said that this suffering is to be investigated. And so investigation is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And this is what we're doing as we go through this process, investigating a lot about this truth of suffering. The second noble truth is there is a cause or an origin of suffering. And that origin is craving, is attachment. And this cause should be abandoned. It should be let go of. So tonight I'm hoping to cover how the different kinds of attachment are experienced in in a practical way. How mindfulness deconditions its forceful, habitual nature. And how that leads to freedom in the moment and over time, a lessening of the suffering because of attachment, because of craving, how there's more and more freedom. But first, I want to reassure all of us that this is part of being human, because oftentimes the the subject of desire will be brought up or talked about even in a sentence as if it's, it's kind of a a bad thing to have, you know, even to have the desire to eat. (laughs) You know, sometimes people say, well, I've got this desire to eat. What about that? You know, 
uh, well, if you don't eat, of course, you'll suffer. You have to follow that desire. There are some desires that lead to the end of suffering, to the end of this long suffering in samsara, and some desires that lead to more and more suffering. So we begin to understand more how it manifests, its causes and conditions, its ramifications. We begin to know the aspirations that we call desire that can lead to the end of suffering. Sometimes it's kind of a languaging thing. It can lead to freedom from suffering, even temporarily, with these beautiful aspirations that we have, the aspiration to understand the truth deeply, to be liberated, to develop concentration, to develop mindfulness. And that's different from the desires that lead to more suffering. So as an example, um, the other evening uh, Sky spoke about the personality types or the temperaments. And she spoke about uh, delusion, mostly, uh, and how that manifests and uh, what happens when delusion is experienced. So this information, as she pointed out, and, but just to remind you, comes from the Visuddhi Maga, which is the path of purification. It's a compilation of commentaries by a particular monk called Buddha Gosha, uh, who lived in Sri Lanka. And this, was, um, this came about 500 years after the Buddha's death. So these are not the Buddha's words, but um, commentary by a very important monk uh, after the time of the Buddha. So he talked about there being temperaments fueled by unconscious habitual tendencies of these three roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. Actually, we each have a combination of these roots. Usually one is more obvious in our personality. And greed, both the greedy nature and the aversive nature, both are accompanied by delusion. So there's always a mix. Once I asked Manindraji, um, my first teacher, what type am I? And he said, oh, you're, you're balanced. So, you know, it was a few moments when I felt pretty good about that. But then he said, oh, you have all three. But mostly the greedy nature is more predominant. But actually, I do notice all three. Um, different times that I notice different of those aspects, but it's true. The, the kind of the grasping nature, the, the seeking after is more predominant. But um, it's not only, as Sky mentioned, it's not only these three types. It's kind of like the maturing of, of wisdom brings about the parallel of of these in in a way that's called the parallel, like the parallel of the greedy nature personality is the faithful nature type. So I just want to talk around that today and and not go into the others. You can find out more about the others at a different time, otherwise it takes too much time. So the parallel of the greedy nature is the faithful nature. That's the positive side. And I noticed that part also in the temperament of my heart. Both temperaments have something in common. So this is how we see that it's parallel. Both temperaments have the seeking out in common, which can manifest like the energy of desire, this seeking out. But it depends what the seeking out is about. In the personality with a greedy temperament accompanied by delusion, There's a seeking out of sensual pleasures as an object. Pleasant feelings derived from taste, smells, sights, sounds, thoughts, etc. This happens in an unconscious, habitual way. It's because of delusion, the mind isn't able to discern. Does this lead to suffering or to the end of suffering? It just seeks out what is pleasant what leads to 
unhappiness, what leads uh, to suffering, doesn't know the difference. So it's caught up in this seeking out of desire. This is the greedy nature temperament. The faithful nature temperament, accompanied by wisdom a lot of the time, not delusion, because it sees clearly, seeks out special qualities of virtue in others, can see the virtue in others, and can admit the virtue in oneself. This is faith, the faithful type. It seeks out the cultivation of generosity, the opportunities to let go. This is the opposite of greed. This faithful nature seeks out good friends because, you know, good friends around us bring out the good in us. It seeks out hearing and practicing the Dhamma. It seeks out things that inspire more faith in the path of practice. So it it not only seeks out this for the benefit of oneself, but for the benefit of all beings. These are the causes and conditions for liberation, all of this seeking out by wisdom, by the faithful nature of this temperament. So this leads bit by bit to the end of suffering. So you can see that there is this seeking out that we do. Sometimes we call it, I want to be liberated. I want to have... um, I want to cultivate virtuous qualities in my heart. And we use the word want, but really it's a seeking out through wisdom, through faith, of what will lead to the end of suffering. So sometimes it's just a languaging thing. Wanting is not necessarily bad. Desire is not necessarily bad. So just in a simple way, you can see that. So as we go through this process of transformation, their proclivities or tendencies of mind will still show up um, in harmful ways and not harmful ways, of course. So those with a greedy nature as a tendency will tend to see pleasant aspect of experience all the time. So uh, this is not just theory for me. I just see this all the time. When... Conditions come where there is a pleasant experience that can come out of it. The mind responds by going towards it. It loves that um, experience about it. Uh, Those with aversive nature have a tendency to see the unpleasant aspect and respond to that. And seeing the unpleasant aspect isn't always wrong. Sometimes seeing the unpleasant aspect is wise to see. So I have a couple of examples, um, if my dear sister wouldn't mind. <laughs> we were in, um, in Burma, and we were walking along in this very sacred town of Sagain, where there are, like, there are like a thousand monasteries. And we're walking along, and I was noticing just all the beauty around in the hills and the temples and everything and saying, this is so pleasant. Isn't this so beautiful? I just love this. And then my dear sister friend pointed out, don't you see those big radar um, <laughs> stations on the hillside? And what about that? The, why is all of that here? You know, and so that seeing the unpleasant isn't necessarily unwise. It's just that the mind of this a kind of greedy type just seeks after what's pleasant. And that was just in full view. Never saw that. It was just right there. So when it was pointed out to me, it was like, oh, <laughs> everything else was blotted out. You know, just the pleasant. The eye was drawn to the pleasant surroundings. And it, looking at that, I, I felt the unpleasant feeling about seeing that as well. So the greedy nature has a tendency to see the pleasant aspect all around. Now, don't make this wrong. It's just what happens. It's just the nature of things. So my other example, which I've had permission to give, um, 
simply because he doesn't complain about it when I talk about it. (laughs) He's my husband, Steve. Um, So the example is we go to a restaurant, and as soon as we get to the door and I look inside, I just really suss out the whole place immediately. And I know exactly where we should sit, where the flowers are, where it's pleasant, where you know, it might be near a nice view, like that. And so I'll say, okay, let's sit over there. And Steve will say, wait a minute. That place over there is near the door to the kitchen. You know? And I didn't see that because the flowers were nearby. Or he'll say, you know, the, the air conditioner is going to blow right on your back. And so he'll see the, the unpleasant nature of things. So this is the way that there's a difference uh, about how greedy nature tends to be drawn towards what's pleasant. So we really have to watch out for that. But it can also be a cause and condition for freeing the mind. And I'll talk about that later. But by the way, if a deluded person were there, deluded type personality were there, that person would say, uh, you know, about sitting in the restaurant, where do you want to sit? That person might say, I don't know, I'll just follow you. You know, just kind of doesn't suss things out as well. It's just, just much more neutral. The neutrality of the mind is much more known about that person. So it's quite revealing to know what manifests in one's personality. And then, as Sky says, we don't take it so seriously, and it's true. In the Dharma world, you know, even among other teachers, well, we're, we're very easy to say, oh, that's why Joseph saw it that way, because Joseph is that type of personality. I'm not going to reveal it. But. <laughs> or Sharon is, Sharon is a self-professed, deluded type. So um, she's the model for me, what the deluded type can turn into. Her mind is very, very, uh, it's very big. It has this uh, kind of, it's able to touch many, many things because that's what uh, that kind of personality does. It, it has to go over things over and over and over again. And so then it begins to know that area very, very well. Though I see that also in myself, how I need to go over and over and over things, really need to take it in and look it over very, very well. So if we don't take it seriously, we don't make a sense of self around it. You know, that's really the harmful thing that comes out of taking it so personally, so to say. Um, and not using it as an excuse to flaunt it around. You know, well, I'm the, I'm the aversive type, so I can say harmful words because I'm the aversive type. Well, that's not really a good excuse. So even the Sayadaws, our Burmese teachers, and the Achans, our Thai teachers, have certain demeanors. Some are very sharp and very stern. But that doesn't mean they have warrior-like compassion within them for all of us to be free from suffering. That's why they're very sharp with their words. They just let it out, don't hold back. And they have that compassion that you know, understand this and be free. Um, so their outer demeanor may be one way, but in, inwardly there is a, a, a full maturity of a lot of um, worthy, um, wholesome qualities. And then there are others who have a very gentle, loving and kind, compassionate demeanor. And just because they're soft on the outside doesn't mean there isn't that sharpness on the inside. There can be a very sharp and wise mind on the inside, uh, even with the outer gentleness and that uh, demeanor of softness. Um, Sometimes people are surprised at my own words. And (laughs) just when I've had enough, you know, when are you finally going to get free? Just take this in. And so um, there's that, too. There's a Burmese saying, even though the bottle is empty, there's still a smell. 
That means even when one is fully liberated, there's still that personality that comes out. Of course, it's not harmful, but there's still the rough edges or whatever it is, the softness. So we have to understand that. We, sometimes we compare, oh, this achan is like that, that teacher is like that. But inside, do we really know? So there are different words that characterize these various intensities of what we call desire. And I won't name them all, but just a few so that you can get the point. The English language isn't adequate. So a lot of times the Pali words have to be used and a fuller explanation of what those Pali words are need to be um, told, expounded upon. So I'll start with the word raga, which is lust. This is one of the words that we don't hear as often, raga or lust. I want to talk about it because the, the description of it by uh, Nyanaponika Thera, um, a great monk from lived in Sri Lanka a long time, a German monk. Uh, he described it in this way, raga, lust. A state of lack, need, and want, always seeking fulfillment, but its drive is inherently insatiable. And as long as it it endures, it maintains a sense of lack. So when I read this, it just really struck me how it, it actually feels that way sometimes. You know, that the, the mind is always seeking something, wanting something, because it comes back to the feeling of lacking inside. Sometimes we feel this as a poverty mentality, this kind of lack. It reminds me that this, this actual description reminded me of long ago and the only time I heard this talk that Sharon gave over at IMS when I was at one of the long courses. And she talked, I, she was probably talking about desire. And um, she said she was at this bazaar or this uh, marketplace one time. It was either in India or the Middle East. have a feeling it was about the Middle East. And she said, a storekeeper, a hawker, yelled out, I have what you need. I have what you need. Mm -hmm. And as soon as she said that, I was sitting there thinking, that's what it feels like when I go shopping. You know, everything's yelling at me, all these pleasant colors and these, how this pleasant silk would feel against the skin, these pleasant tastes. Um, these pleasant odors of the perfume counter, you know, yelling out to me, I have what you need, as if I'm lacking it, you know. I have what you need. And over time, just kind of watching that, and, that, you know, that's my practice, just watching that greed come up and that feeling of lack that it comes from. And, you know, that urge to okay, let's go to the perfume counter (laughs) and smell. You know, my kids used to be sick and tired of me coming home with all these different smells on my arms. And then if there wasn't enough room, I'd say, let me use your arm. (laughs) So just really tired of that. Actually, weariness is a good sign. So what struck me was that feeling, you know, of that reaching out all the time, that feeling of lack, that constant wanting. This is our human predicament. So just seeing it, we live in this, in a way you could say it's a paradise. But I remember when Upandita first came to America, he said, there's just a thin, very thin veneer of glitter over this society. And what's underneath is a lot of suffering because we live in this consumer society, you know, always calling out to us. I mean, that's not the only thing, but always calling out to us, I have what you need. I have what you need. So I've learned, it's taken time, but I've learned this mantra. When I hear that, I have what you need, then I say inside myself, I have what I need. I have what I need have what I need. I'm still saying it. It's not 
you know, done is not yet done on the path. So, as a way to counteract that habitual feeling of lack, just coming into myself and seeing what beautiful qualities there can be seen inside my own heart that doesn't need to take from the outer to fill up this feeling of emptiness, to see that it can be understood and filled by acknowledging the, the wholesome qualities of mind that are already there. So this is one of the counteractions to that as well. This is from uh, the book Cra- From Craving to Liberation, as Analayo, the author of that book, says. Uh, one becomes, with craving, one becomes unable to discern what constitutes one's own and another's welfare, causes householders to quarrel, manifesting as passionate attachment to views, even causes recluses to quarrel with one another. Truly so. Tanha is the word for craving. It's manifested as insatiability, as we have um, seen in our own lives or even in the, own li- in the lives of others. Now I see that people are being incarcerated because of greed. More people are being incarcerated because of greed than ever before, to my knowledge. used to be more because of acts of cruelty and aggression and aversion, but now it's a lot for acts of greed. And I think this is good that this is brought out in in the world. So insatiability, often depicted by the feeling of thirst. Because of ignorance, we drink and drink and drink, but it's salt water, this kind of thirst. And because we're drinking what is called salt, salt water, this is the analogy in the text, we just become more and more thirsty. What's in it has the causes and conditions to become more and more thirsty, feel insatiable. Another depiction is of a hungry ghost with a pinhole mouth, and a huge and bottomless pit of a stomach. And nothing can satisfy the thirst, the greed, the wanting, the craving of that hungry ghost. There's craving for sense objects, it said, visible experiences, sounds, odors, tastes, bodily impressions, mental impressions. There's craving for existence, There's craving for non-existence. But all of these uh, are mentioned in the text. So how do we understand craving for existence? Just in a very straightforward way. Reflect on all the plans you made today and other days. Usually that craving for existence is craving after pleasant experience. You know, we're planning for us to have you know, a pleasant life, of course. There's nothing wrong with planning, but it goes on over time a lot, as we all know. None of us plan for suffering. Think about it. Did you have any plans to suffer today? We planned for continued existence, looking after pleasure over and over again. If we live out all these plans... This is dukkha, because it just comes over and over and over again. This is samsara. Craving for non-existence. Did you wish for that meat hook in your back to go away? That pain in the body to go away? And sometimes when that happened, when you felt the pain in the body or the pain in the mind, didn't you have maybe maybe it was a conscious wish an unconscious wish to not exist i wish that this would stop and everything about this body mind experience would stop this craving for non existence um, this kind of annihilation so i want to give an example 
of this. When I was a nun for a short period of time in Burma, I was having, of course, you know, with the long retreat, there are pleasant experiences that are, are known um, because of certain conditions that come together. And there was craving for this, to have more and more of this. And there was expecting for it to, ar- to arise when it hadn't arisen yet. So always the, the teacher would ask, uh, is there wanting for more of it? Is there the expecting of it to arise again? And of course, this was happening. Making plans to, you know, if I had a good sitting in the morning, making plans to just be so over-guarding my practice, over-protecting my practice so that no sound would come. To, you know, if there was somebody talking to me, it was, don't talk to me. You know, just over-protecting what was going on so that, you know, this comes from craving, so that maybe I could get back into that same sitting position with all the same conditions and have that same pleasant experience in the morning. So as one of my yogi friends says, there's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of the day, right? You're just kind of craving for it to happen again, wanting all the right conditions to come up. But when the practice was difficult and I wanted it to end, there was this yearning to go home. And, um, you know, I was just, it was so difficult that the dukkhas, dukkhanyanas were so hard. The experience of suffering in the body and the mind was so deep and um, profound that it couldn't, the mind couldn't take it. It finally did withstand it. But there was this deep craving that I saw to not exist, to, for it to all end. So this is how craving for existence, craving for non-existence can come about, just in a very straightforward way. The fuel for craving to arise is ignorance. This ignorance is the wrong view of perceiving that there can be something gratifying permanently. So that we go after something because we have this wrong view that whatever we're going after will give some kind of permanent satisfaction, permanent gratification. Not understanding that it's all impermanent, even pleasant feeling. There's nothing wrong with enjoying pleasant feeling. But to uh, think that it's going to uh, be permanently satisfying, this is dukkha. The unsatisfactory nature of experience is dukkha. But we don't see this because of ignorance, because of wrong view. And so this fosters the growth of craving even more. Because we don't see this, we play out that craving over and over again. This is called the hedonic treadmill. Wrongly believing that by gratifying our craving, suffering will come to an end. But it really doesn't. It only feeds it. The more we think about something that we're going to come to some conclusion or some final answer, we just feel like we're a dog chasing our tail, in a way. There are, times that, there are times it makes sense to reflect and ponder on something, but there comes a time when we know it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. It's pretty useless. In fact, Manindra used to say that we're tired, really, because the mind is tired, not so much the body, because most of what we think about tires the mind withers the mind. This story about Manindra, um, he loves sweets, as I do, and, um, but that's abating just a little bit. But he, he finally got weary of, of it, and he said, he said to himself, for a long time I've been fooled by this craving for sweets. I've been just going after the sweetness the sweet taste, the pleasant taste over and over again. 
So he said he decided when he was in India to go to the sweet shop and to get all the sweets that he wanted. So he got this big, what he described was, you know, about as big a, a, a box as this podium. And he filled it with sweets. And then he went to sit down somewhere and he put it in front of him. And he said, this has caused me so much suffering. He really pondered on the suffering of the craving. And he, he reflected on it, that what going after this over and over in his lifetime caused, you know, stomach ache and also wanting more of it and thinking about it all the time. And so he decided to eat it all. So he took and he ate mindfully and really felt the disgust in it. And that was actually um, what was helpful to him, to see the disgusting nature of that experience. So just eating all the sweets. And he really, if you were in front of him telling, while he was telling the story and just watched his face, you know, how his face showed how disgusting it was eating everything, he said, eating the whole thing and, and reflecting on for, from time immemorial this has caused suffering. And I'm, this is the end now. Of course, you know, it wasn't really totally the end, but he was really opening to the suffering and letting himself feel that, what, what that was all about within him. In the depiction of dependent arising, which is the Paticca Samuppada, many of you understand and know about, the link that leads to the arising of craving is feeling, Vedana. So many of you may have heard of this. Vedana leads to craving, or tanha. So I want to talk about just those, that area of the link. Vedana, or feeling, is not an emotion like sadness or aversion or, the, or that kind of more um, grisly feeling experience of greed um, or aversion. Vedana is, uh, or feeling, is the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. What this feeling does is it feels in the sense that it feels the affective tones of this pleasure, of this pleasant, of this displeasure, of unpleasant, of neutrality. It's a very subtle experience. It's not as gross as um, attachment or aversion or delusion. So I'd like to give an example of this again. I I give these stories because it'll keep you awake this can be, it could be very boring without stories. So the other evening, I don't know about you, but I went out of the hall after this, um, maybe about 9 o'clock or 9.15, and there was this um, I- incredible smell coming out of the kitchen. But the smell wasn't what caught my attention. I didn't know that in the moment, only in retrospect. It was the pleasant aspect of that smell, the pleasant feeling. So honestly, I'll tell you what happened. Walked out of here, pleasant feeling arose, craving for pleasant feeling arose. The action to follow that craving immediately took place. I did not go put my shoes on. I turned right away into the kitchen, (laughs) hoping to find someone to ask them, are you making cookies or something? You know, could you give this poor teacher a cookie? And, but no one was there, and I didn't see. I only just smelled, and not even mindful of the smell, just pleasant experience happening. So craving arose right on its heels, and that action to go after, to grasp that craving came immediately after that. And so this, this grasping is called this tanha, this um, holding tightly, Clinging is called, it's called something else. It's called upadana. So there's this grasping and there's this holding tightly. And so I felt this holding tightly like, 
where are they? Where are the cookies? You know, <laughs> opening the closet, <laughs> the things, you know, they couldn't have put them in the fridge this soon, you know, it's too hot. They would be too hot. So you, you, you see that it, it gets more grisly after that. Pleasant is very, very subtle. Then comes the, the tanha, the craving, and then comes the holding on, you know, I am going to get this. And then when you, you've got it, which I never did, but I felt that almost, you know, you want to hang on to it. And there is a you, a me, an I there at that moment. So um, craving actually is in response to the feeling of uh, pleasant. The craving isn't in response to the cookie or to what I thought was the cookie, which it turned out to be granola. (laughs) So craving, okay, I really want you to get this. Craving is the reactivity to pleasant feeling. That's where reactivity, well, that's what reactivity is really all about. It's the reactivity, craving is the reactivity to that pleasant feeling. That pleasant feeling, just to kind of suss that out a little more, that pleasant feeling came along with the, with the smelling, with the contact, the contact of smelling, and the pleasant feeling came together. So craving went after that pleasant feeling. So pleasant feeling is a strong condition for craving to arise. The contemplation or meditation on feeling, on Vedana, on the feeling tone, holds the intriguing potential of breaking the chain of suffering at its weakest link. So this is, an, this is just an important um, point in your practice. When when the mind is fairly quiet and there can be mindfulness of feeling, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and when it's really, really quiet, neutral feeling, notice it here. Be mindful at this point because there is a possibility of when being mindful of any pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling that the potential for craving for aversion, or for delusion will not arise. The potential for those will not arise. So that's um, a bigger teaching in, in and of itself. So I saw this clearly when I was in Burma again, that same time when I was in Burma, and thoughts of home would arise. The biggest... Um, I would say defilement for me is home, used to be homesickness. It's not as much anymore. But this would pull the energy towards thinking about it, thinking about my home, my bed, my garden, the teacups that I like to use, you know, my children and grandchildren. And thinking about this, of course, the thought, which is the contact, would bring a lot of pleasant feeling, right? So that's why we go there. Because we want the contact through thinking. We want to feel this pleasant feeling. And so thinking about it over and over again, contact with the mental stimuli, the thoughts, the visions, etc. And so stayed mindful of the pleasant feeling that would arise. Just because I understand this whole area. So just staying mindful of the pleasant feeling over and over again, staying mindful of the pleasant feeling. And then in time, the, the, that chain, that, would, that link that would go to wanting, that would go to yearning, eventually just faded away, just by being with pleasant feeling over and over again. And so you'll, you, you might be able to notice that in your own practice, maybe to, to direct your mind. What? What is this pleasant feeling? Sometimes it's really so ephemeral that you just can't direct the mind there. The mind has to get quiet enough 
to notice it uh, pretty much um, spontaneously or on its own. So you'll notice with wanting and craving, desire, attachment, it's an agitating experience. If you get to the wanting, if you get to the um, yearning, which, you know, is yearning to be home, a lot of homesickness. I reported that a lot um, when I was away. So it's very agitating. If you can turn your attention towards how it's agitating, it can be really understood in a different way. So when the mind is wanting something, if you turn towards the agitation in the mind, it can be very, very helpful. Turn the mind away from the object of what is being wanted. You know, so um, I didn't do that with the pleasant smell that came out of the kitchen. And one thing I could have done is turn the mind towards the agitation of the wanting. This is another way to work with it. It's the agitation of going towards, of wanting that pleasant experience. If we turn our attention to it, this wanting can be very, very agitating. It wants to feel satisfied. That uh, agitation wants to feel satisfied. So if you feel that agitation, there is a possibility of just seeing the impermanent nature of that agitation, of seeing that those moments of agitation is not me, not mine, not who I am. So this may sound like just a bunch of words to you, but it works. If you turn your attention away from the object of your wanting and turn your attention towards the feeling of agitation and see the impermanent nature of it, it can be a very freeing experience. This would come up for me a lot in practice because of wanting to go home, wanting to go home, wanting to be in my own bed, you know, and then attention is on the bed. (laughs) Attention is on the home. Attention is want to hug my grandchildren, you know, that feeling, that pleasant feeling. So turn the attention towards the wanting mind and the feeling of agitation around it and just seeing it as impermanent or seeing it as not me, not mine, not who I am. This is freeing the mind in that moment. Craving doesn't discern what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. It just wants that gratification. So when sometimes when we can stop and we can discern, is this leading to happiness or to more uh, craving? Because craving arises and then we, we satisfy it. And because we've satisfied it, there's a habit pattern going. So that habit pattern happens over and over and over again, satisfying the craving. The next time there's a strong craving for something, say a particular food or a particular experience, or just thinking about something over and over again, thinking about my grandchildren over and over again, and then, you know, wanting to hug them, wanting to see them. If we can turn the attention away from the object of craving and turn the attention to the feeling of craving, which is agitation, it really helps, really helps to see the impermanent nature of it when it doesn't get satisfied, especially. It's really hard to do this, but it's very, very freeing to do this. To be willing to withstand the agitation, the unpleasant nature of it. So turning away from the object of your wanting and turning towards the feeling of wanting, the experience of wanting. It weakens its force. It breaks the habitual pattern because of that. Um, 
years ago, uh, Steve and I gave up chocolate. And it came about because um, <laughs> we, were, we were teaching a three-month course here. And when we went home to Maui, we realized, oh, we didn't have a lot of chocolate. You know, let's eat chocolate. So we went to one of our favorite restaurants and we ordered this chocolate to die for decadent, you know, devil's food cake or something like that. So um, it was in front of us and we were eating it, you know, with no mindfulness probably, (laughs) just eating away. And there came upon us this feeling of disgust, you know, in, in eating it. Actually, that was a good experience to have. And there... Steve had the feeling first, being the <laughs> aversive type. So he, feel, he notices this and he says, oh, this is really disgusting. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to give up chocolate. And for one year, and being, you know, slightly deluded at that moment, I said, I am too. You know, so... so um, then I thought about it a minute later. I said, did I do the right thing? Okay, I really have to go through with it, being a greedy type and making that commitment with you know, a strong, committed kind of Dharma person. So um, I thought, okay, I'll give up this chocolate for one year. I don't know. But so then just watching the greed arise was so helpful you know, when wanting the chocolate and it was in front, but strong determination to not have it. Except on United Airlines, <laughs> because they would serve chocolate um, sometimes, you know, chocolate macadamia nuts. And we gave one exception. So it sounds a little silly, but I got to kind of um, re- revisit my experience with chocolate every time. I was on United Airlines, and they served chocolate. So it was like really tasting it and finding out during the plane ride, was, is this really satisfying, really being mindful and seeing it's not really that satisfying, you know. It's just actually, if you chew on it more and more, it's, it's pretty disgusting after a while. And so looking at it in that way and turning the attention away from the kind of the taste and turning towards the wanting. What was that wanting all about? Was it really pleasant? Really looking at the pleasant or unpleasant experience of it. And it was really a mixture, just noticing the pleasant, the unpleasant. It was really a mixture of pleasant, unpleasant. And I realized mostly it's unpleasant. Actually, if you really pay attention to eating, it's a lot of unpleasant that happens there. So after a long while um, of doing this, it really became a, a place of strength to see that, oh, you know, it's possible to, to give it up. And um, actually, even now, Steve has a little piece of chocolate it, every afternoon um, as a just a little kind of hit of sweetness in the afternoon. He'll only take just a little, a few pieces, you know, like a couple of squares. And it can stay in that refrigerator. Some of you may not believe me, but it can stay in that refrigerator, and I don't go after it, because I remember how it can be. Except at Candle's house, when she serves chocolate. So... Uh, but you'll notice that um, if you really take something in, like take some time to really, when you really greedy, feel greedy for something that's served on the table, take some time to really taste it, to really notice what's going on as you're chewing, tasting, and you'll really see that there's such a mix of pleasant and unpleasant there. And we fool ourselves a lot of times thinking that, you know, we're going after the pleasant, but actually, when we really take a look, there's a mix of what's going on in the tasting. And um, it's not always as satisfying as we think it would be. 
So notice what's happening around that in yourself. So just a little more, just to finish this up. Um, Let's see. To work with craving and the wanting mind to be freer and freer from its hold, its habitual tendency. I mentioned already two ways that you could do that. To contemplate on the feeling, to really incline the mind. Uh, And this takes some subtlety in your experience to incline the mind towards what's the Vedana, that's the feeling. What is this pleasant feeling here? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, is it neutral? Pleasant feeling um, brings about craving or attachment or wanting. So sometimes we can catch this Vedana, this pleasant feeling. So catching it right there, just knowing and noting pleasant, pleasant, pleasant when it's happening. And there can be times when this can kind of nip in the bud the uh, desire, this kind of full-blown desire to arise. Um, Sometimes we'll experience this uh, ability to turn away uh, from what is pleasant. Um, So say we're experiencing something that's going on, a wanting of an object. Like um, the other day, I was really wanting something to happen. And I realized this wanting was going on. So I turned the attention uh, away from the object of wanting and turned it towards the experience of wanting. And it was very agitating. And just noticing that agitation in the mind, in the body, in the heart, in time, just, just saw the impermanence of that. Just saw the not selfness of all of that. So in these, you can see the impermanent, impersonal, and unsatisfactory nature in these ways of uh, this wanting, of this yearning, of this uh, mind that is going after things all the time. But also there are other ways. Practicing generosity, the opposite of desire, the opposite of greed, One of our teachers calls it practicing generosity is letting go of greed. Practicing contentment, noticing that when it's in the mind. And sometimes when greed is in the mind, sometimes I just ask myself, can I just be content with what is there right now? Practicing renunciation, letting go. Uh, If there's a wanting there, Sometimes I have to actually think about it and say, can I just let go of this? And oftentimes, it's very easy. It's not that hard. You know, just, just see, we see the danger in holding on. We see the benefit of letting go. So those are some aspects of craving and understanding it and ways that will lead to the end of suffering when we understand craving. So I'd like to end with this from the Tao Te Ching again. The secret waits for eyes unclouded by longing. So let's just sit for a moment.
So let's end with the reflections on the sharing of blessings. And then share the, the blessings of our listening to the Dhamma and of the offering of the Dhamma for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.